Views and opinions expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. broadcast of Black Talk Radio News. My name is Scotty Reed and I'm broadcasting from behind the enemy lines of USA Inc. It is a Tuesday morning here in North Carolina. Today's date is June the 25th, 2019. Just want to remind those who are who are uh, listeners of our main station, Black Talk Radio Network, any of the pre-recorded programming that you hear on the station. Um, if, for example, we break in with some live programming and you were listening to uh, something that was pre-recorded, you can find that podcast on our network at blacktalkradionetwork.com. I know uh, in Cobra's debut program, which comes on the first and third Mondays, yeah, the first and third Mondays, on Monday nights at let me see let me see uh, nine o'clock yeah nine o'clock p.m. Eastern time I'm sorry <laughs> uh, they just started and um, so we're glad that they joined us to share information on the reparations movement I will be talking about reparations briefly uh, this morning I talked a lot about it yesterday and I'm gonna continue to cover it. Um, and I'm glad that it is still getting coverage in the news. So um, I will touch on reparations a little bit today. I'm not sure how long I'm going to be on, on air today. I'm going to be on air as long as it takes me to get through the news that I have for you. Today is basically just a general uh, news day. I don't have a main topic. Um, but there is that one story that I want to focus on called um, it's an article out and thanks. I want to say thanks to Ross for sharing it in BTR community about uh, this rapper by the name of The Game. I know that's not his real name, but you know, that's his stage name. Um, but he was asked by TMZ of all media outlets uh, what he thought about reparations and uh, they titled that um, the people who posted the article titled, titled it 40 Acres in a Lamborghini. You know, playing on the 40 acres in a mule. And would you accept 40 acres of land and a Lamborghini as a form of reparations? But the article also um, cites some stuff said by TMZ, some questions that they was asking of the game. And I'm going to attempt to answer uh, those questions. And it's not like I haven't covered it in the past when people start talking about, can the United States government afford to pay reparations? Or would it bankrupt the United States as TMZ asked the game? And game said, I don't care if it do. Um, so I feel them on that. Um, yeah. So please continue to support 
the nonprofit new media organization, Black Talk Media Project, uh, which established Black Talk Radio Network in 2008. We've been going 11 years strong, coming up on our 12th um, year of our organization and our platforms being in existence. Uh, our anniversary is in, in November, sometime <laughs> in November. I don't remember the exact date, but it's it's we launched in, in November of 2008. Um, the platform, Black Talk Radio Network. Um, we would like to establish more platforms and not platforms like exactly like Black Talk Radio Network, but platforms that are more localized to a specific community. Um, just like a terrestrial radio station in any city is should be focusing on program towards those cities uh, dealing with local politics. But see, that's the problem, though. That's the, one of the problems I identified back in 2008 after I was doing research. And, you know, when we do have radio stations that uh, target a black demographic, they're usually just the same voices. Okay, um, they're syndicated across the nation. Not to say that some of those problems, well, Michael Baston's no longer on, on the air because he started talking a little bit too much about uh, racism and the criminal justice system and helping point out injustices. So um, they kicked him off the air. I think he was with CBS. It was either with CBS Radio or ABC. And he was syndicated, man, all across the United States. And he just disappeared off the airwaves, and that was a very popular program. But, you know, um, we still only have few voices. Now, what do we have? We have Tom Joyner in the morning, or we have, uh, what's his name, the comedian Steve Harvey doing talk radio. And this is being broadcast to every individual black radio market or black community. Um, or wherever, you know, a lot of black people um, may be living. And, and that's a problem. That's a problem. People need information. They need not only to know what's going on in the world, what's going on in the country that they live in, but they also need to know what's going on in the county or the city that they live in, in the state that they live in. And that's that's something we desperately need. And the only way that we're going to have it is to build our own. So please continue to support if you're not a financial donor to Black Talk Media Project. Again, this is a tax-deductible donation. Um, but go to blacktalkradionetwork.com. Look for the PayPal button. Uh, you may see um, also other uh, banners that say help keep us online. Click on those and you can make a donation. You don't have to have a PayPal account. Um, you can use, uh, you don't have, you can, if you have a PayPal account, of course, you can do it via PayPal. But if you don't, you don't have to create one. You can use any credit card or debit card that uh, PayPal accepts and set up a donation. You can set up a monthly donation. Thank you to the brother who set up the um, um, $2 a month donation the other day. You know who you are. Um, you know, I guess they didn't want to join BTR community, and that's cool. That's cool. A lot of people not into social media, um, but you know, we also have BTRcommunity.com, a social media platform. Um, we ask for a subscription fee of twenty-four dollars a year. This is so that we can fund 
our media operations and, and expand them. Um, so if, if you think like we think that black radio stations matter, black media platforms matter, please considering consider making a donation or and or joining btrcommunity.com. Just $24 a year. All right, so got a, a, a few news stories to share with you. Um, I'm going to jump right into this TMZ um, story. Again, Ross shared his story in BTR community, and I was like, let me take a look at this. And, and then so I read the article, and, and I was like, yeah, let, let me deconstruct some of the things that um, you know, TMZ is asking of the game. So this article was published on face2faceafrica.com. That's face, the number two, faceafrica.com. And it was written by Francis Akblay. Um, I'm sorry if I mispronounced his name, um, but black writer, shout out to you, brother, um, said, would you take 40 acres of land in a Lamborghini as slavery reparations? Well, just a simple answer to that question, yes, I would. Okay, I wouldn't keep the Lamborghini. I would sell the Lamborghini because, uh, you know, we can't develop land with a Lamborghini. I would sell that Lamborghini and get me a vehicle that's, that's more, um, uh, how should I say, um, that makes more sense. That's not more practical is the word that I was saying. What I want to ride around in a Lamborghini stunting for um, now. But I'll take that land and I'll sell that Lamborghini as a you know quick answer to the question. Uh, that was posed in this headline. So he goes on to write, the topic of payment of reparations for slavery in the United States has recently been reignited and become a trending topic with elections nearing several presidential hopefuls have also weighed in on the topic. This February, U.S. Senator Democratic Presidential Hopeful Elizabeth Warren announced their full support for reparations for black Americans affected by slavery. Now, let me just say this. It's over 20 different Democratic uh, candidates or those seeking the Democratic nomination to run against Donald Trump in 2020. I'm not sure about all 20, but the top tier candidates, except for Joe Biden, I don't know where Joe Biden stands on the issue of reparations. Um, I don't even think he's been asked the question. I just, I simply don't know. And that's on me. I, I should look that up, but I'm not going to look it up right now. Um, but I, I have noticed that whenever I read these articles um, or watch, you know, um, newscasts about reparations, they don't talk to, they don't ask Joe Biden. They don't talk to him about it, but they'll ask everybody else. But all the top tier uh, candidates, the ones with the most name recognition, except for Joe Biden, have expressed support of reparations or if not directly for reparations for setting up the reparations commission to do the study and then come up with 
uh, reparations package, recommendations. So that's about Bernie Sanders said he would sign H.R. 40 into law. Congress can get it passed. Elizabeth Warren says she supports reparations uh, for black Americans affected by slavery. And again, it's not just slavery. And again, slavery's never been abolished. Um, uh, Kamala Harris finally came around and she's supporting it. Cory Booker supports it. Um, let me see if there's anybody else. Uh, uh, the Cruz brother, um, I forget his first name. He used to be uh, Barack Obama's uh, urban and de- urban development, how and housing and urban development secretary. Um, he has a, a twin brother, I believe, who's uh, running for office down there in Texas. But he said he supports it. Um, this fringe candidate, and I and I don't mean that in a derogatory way. I just mean that in um, she doesn't really have a lot of support. Her name is Miriam Williams, but she talks a lot about reparations. Um, so, well, not a lot, but she mentions her support for it. So, just about all of them do. So, I'm just skip over this part, and then it goes. You know, some of the stuff we've already covered. Mitch McConnell's. Um, uh, asinine statement about we've tried to deal with our original sin of slavery by fighting the civil war, passing landmark civil rights legislation Yeah, that y'all keep trying to undermine uh, Republicans um, but also we've elected an African American president, wow you know, um, that had no value to me, I know it had a lot of value to a lot of black people and I understand why um, because of symbolism and and, and, you know, just seeing black people um, as being successful and, and what have you. So I'm not going to minimize um, that. Um, but, yeah, that's not reparations, Mitch McConnell. And I think um, Ta-Nehisi Coates gave him a good spanking on that issue. All right. So anyway, TMZ caught up with Los Angeles rapper The Game, who insisted 40 acres of land in a Lamborghini. Of course, this is in reference to the 40 acres in a mule that was promised to African Americans, primarily the ones that served in the Union Army as as soldiers or um, as spies. And, you know, the labor uh, that those emancipated Africans um, were able to provide this would be to come this wouldn't even be the United States if not for them okay and that was promised to them and and the US government reneged on it so let's uh it says if it's then they ask him is it going to bankrupt the country the documentary rapper couldn't care less so let's hear um little bit about what he said here here's the video audio black reparations have been in the news all week it's in a big topic uh, you know back in the day they were saying 40 acres and a mule is, is what everyone should get 40 acres and a mule in 2019 what what do reparations look like what does that look like it looked like 40 acres in a lamborghini 40 acres in a lamborghini 40 acres in a lambo do you think that's that, that's what everyone should receive? Do you think be, like better works if he becomes president? He's going to sign forty acres in a forty acres in a Lambo. Forty acres in a Lambo. I like that. I'm down for that. Is, is that going to bankrupt the country? No, I don't know what it's going to do, but I know it don't matter what it does because the country was built on the backs of, you know, right slavery. So, okay, so so 
So are, are you are you going to vote for any president puts that in their platform? I'm not really, like, into I don't even think I can vote, man. Oh, I'm right, a felon, bro. Oh, right, right, right. You know what I'm saying? Right, right. So let's, like, let's, like, let's make sure felons can vote. Let's count everybody. Because oh, right. you made a mistake, you can't vote, you're not a citizen. Right. I can still go to jail in America, right? We're going to cut it off there. We don't need to hear about Nicki Minaj or any kind of rap beefs that going on that's going on. And, and I tell you, man, I've talked about it. I don't want to go uh, digress into another topic, but I have uh, been mentioning how media, media is white media particularly, um, but black media, too. Uh, really just just have black people uh, all caught up in these celebrity beasts, which are all for show and what have you, and giving your energy to that nonsense and and so of course DM, TMC with there. But let's talk let's talk about the question of whether it would bankrupt the nation. Um, but, but you know, also got to mention um, the game. You know, you're not in. You saying you're not into voting, and you know, I don't try to to uh, let's say. Uh, mock people or belittle people because they don't do something um, that I do and, and other people do that that's not for me to do okay um, but he's exactly right and he should find out if he's able to vote uh, if he's in California I'm not sure right now but a lot of states have been restoring uh, voting rights to felons and a lot of it has been uh, from put from uh, movements built by the formerly incarcerated as well as those who are incarcerated and their families and their friends and what have you. So if he thinks he wants to vote, um, he should find out um, if he can in, in his state, you know, because he, if he's off probation and completed all his probation, um, then he should be able to vote. But there are um, states Florida was one that had permanent um, um, disenfranchisement, voting disenfranchisement for felons. But, you know, they got a ballot initiative on the ballot to restore those rights. And, of course, um, the Republicans in Florida are trying to enact or they have enacted a poll tax saying you got to first pay all your fines and and all this and that. Um, But the question on does it, does will it bankrupt the country? So this is my line of thinking, and I've said this before. Let's look at reparations as the same way they was touting a stimulus check for Americans. Okay, um, both the Bush and the Obama administration sent out stimulus packages. Some people got checks. Some people got tax credits. Um, so it, it, again, reparations can take several forms. Um, it's not all about a check, but it should be a check in, included. Um, but nobody was asking, I shouldn't say anyone were asking, but the media, the mainstream media was not making a big deal out of, Hey, Bush, before you send out these this hundreds of billions of dollars in your stimulus are are you concerned about it bankrupting the country you know they they didn't ask those questions nobody asked obama that then nobody asked that when when they bailed out 
uh, not only Wall Street banks who had brought down the economy, and I'm talking about not just the U.S. economy, but the global economy by way of their fraud should have been in jail and not getting uh, checks, bailout checks. I don't even know how much the entire bailout cost, but it was a lot. It was a lot. Nobody asked that question. Nobody was worried about bankrupting. Matter of fact, they said this will bring us back from from the edge, from economic destruction, sending out these stimulus checks. And it actually did. It did. So, I, you know, I just pulled up a couple of articles uh, this morning to to further answer this check uh, question. Would it bankrupt America? Can America, I shouldn't say America, can the United States afford reparations? So I pulled up this article. Who received stimulus checks and how much was spent? And this, uh, I found this on the balance.com. It says, now, right now it's talking about Barack Obama's administration. In 2009, the Economic Stimulus Act sent out $13 billion in stimulus checks, according to the Congressional Budget Office. The one-time payment went to recipients of Social Security, Supplemental Security Income, and Veterans Benefits. It was a portion of the $787 billion budgeted in fiscal year 2009 as part of the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. You know, if a reparations commission ever does get set up um, and they come up with a recommendation and then a member of Congress or the Senate introduces a bill to act on those uh, recommendations, they should call it the African American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. That's what they should call it. So Congress passed the ARRA to end the 2008 financial crisis. The government's goal was that the recipients would immediately spend the $13 billion in stimulus checks. That would be a quick, direct way to jumpstart economic growth. Now, I made this uh, uh, argument before when I first started using um, the stimulus checks that was sent out um, and saying that, hey, just look at it as you stimulating the U.S. economy because you know these African Americans who are disproportionately deprived of, of, of necessities and what you know they're going to put it right back into the U.S. economy. So, no, it's not going to bankrupt. Did the did the seven hundred and eighty seven billion budgeted in two thousand and nine to send out? And they also included thirteen billion in stimulus checks. Did that bankrupt them? No, you said it saved the uh, 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 U.S. economy. That's what you said. Why would reparations be any different? Now I'm sure that there will be some. No, I don't. I don't think it would be a large percentage of African Americans, but I am sure that some would leave the country, as I've said on on, on a past uh, broadcast. They would leave the country. They would go to Africa. They would go settle in Ghana, maybe South Africa. You know, uh, Africa is a very large co- uh, country. There are a lot of people 
I shouldn't say a lot, but there are, there's a substantial number of people that I have heard um, over the years who, who want to go to Africa, um, but they can't afford to go. So like I said in the past, if you are racist, white supremacist, and you don't want black people here, um, or non-white people in general, well, that's a way you can get rid of some of them. Give them that stimulus check so they can go to Africa. Okay? Just like you did uh, after the Civil War, and that's how Liberia got started. You didn't give them reparations checks, but you gave them a boat ticket um, to this colony uh, that you set up in Africa, which is now known as the nation of Liberia. That's how it got started. Okay, when did the stimulus checks go out? The government sent economic stimulus checks of 250 each to more than 52 million Social Security and SSI recipients in May of 2009. If you, It's talking about if you didn't receive your check to call this number. Uh, some checks were also sent to some recipients of the Veterans Affairs or Railroad Retirement Board benefits. Well, See, my grandfather would have got one of those, but he was dead. Um, yeah, he died um, back in the, in the 80s, uh, 88, I believe, because um, I remember I had to come home uh, from my deployment overseas to attend his funeral, but uh, he retired from the railroad. Um, did everyone receive stimulus checks is, is another question. The act was unusual in that most taxpayers did not receive checks. Instead, they receive tax rebates. Instead of waiting until the April tax deadline, their withholding was cut. The Obama administration argued that they will receive benefits quicker. So that's another form of reparations that it could take. Uh, uh, tax relief. Like I said yesterday, um, what about a lifetime tax exemption? Okay, no. What about 50 years tax exemption? No. What about 25 years tax exemption? Okay. So, again, these are things that have already been done for certain groups of people in, in the United States. But most people got tax relief. So, for poor people, that meant they got a, a, a big uh, tax return check. I remember hearing conservatives complaining about it. Um, let me see. The average taxpayer received a tax cut in 2009 of 400 per individual or 800 per family. They did not receive stimulus checks. Instead, the tax cuts appeared in each paycheck starting in June 2009. Each employee saw about 6% less in withholding. So, again, they can come up with all kind of creative ways programs to um what what did I call it for the African American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. They come up with all kind of creative ways to to put that into place. Uh let me see the stimulus act gave them more than 20 billion in income tax credits for the 2009 tax year. It budgeted 5 billion for other tax credits. There was 14 billion allocated for extended COBRA co-payments for the millions of newly unemployed workers. COBRA is the Consolidated Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act. All right. 
So, I mean, are you weakened also? Say reparations is a reconciliatory uh, act. In total, the act budgeted $65 billion for stimulus checks, credits for taxpayers, and credits for the unemployed. It, it, I mean, it goes on and on. Um, another, it says, uh, what other stimulus benefits taxpayers received in 2009? Stimulus checks were just one part of the ARRA. Another $247 billion went to immediate relief for families, according to the now defunct recovery.gov website. This included tax cuts, tax credits, and extended unemployment benefits. The goal was to stimulate auto and home sales. So again, I submit to you that a reparations package, whether it includes checks, whether it includes income tax credits, I mean, look at all of this stuff I just read to you, all these different forms of bringing relief, all of that. And they said, well, what did they say it was going to do? It was going to stimulate auto and home sale. It was going to help the U.S. economy recover from the damage done to it by unscrupulous, unethical, criminal bankers on Wall Street. It said, for example, the child tax credit was expanded for the working poor. Also, the earned income tax credit was expanded for families with three or more children. ARRA added a 2,500 tax credit for college tuition. Now, um, I will be doing a story on college. Um, yesterday, I mentioned to you that uh, Bernie Sanders and um, the other Members of the House, I think uh, Alexandria uh, Ocasio-Cortez, also, uh, how do you pronounce her name, Ilhan Omar, or Omar, Representative Omar out of Minnesota, uh, as well as another one out of Washington. Uh, they introduced a bill um, that would eliminate all student uh, loans. It would, All student debt, I should say. It would eliminate that. And so, but I'll get I'll I'll get to that story later. But I I was just reminded of that story that I wanted to to let you listen to the uh, press conference on because it's very important, especially while it is a bill that's designed to help all students who have this tremendous debt or or U.S. citizens who have this tremendous debt. Um, it would disproportionately help black citizens. It would. It would disproportionately help. And so that's reason to support it. Um, definitely, although, you know, I'm, I have um, people in the Republican Party over the districts uh, here in North Carolina that I am in, but I'm still going to write them and tell them, you, yeah, man, you need to vote for this. Um, but yeah, so uh, continuing with this article, it says many of the newly unemployed took advantage of this credit to update their skills or change careers. It budgeted more than one billion for an eight thousand tax credit for first time home buyer. So again, man, again, this this ain't ancient history. Nobody was asking, is this gonna bankrupt the United States? Is this gonna bankrupt the U.S. government? 
No, they were saying the exact opposite. And it had the exact opposite effect. It saved the U.S. economy just like African Americans saved the United States of America during the Civil War. Man, I mean, it keeps going on. Now, let me get to the Bush administration. That was just the Obama administration. Let me get to the Bush administration. Stimulus checks in 2008. The year before ARRA, the the Bush administration also sent out stimulus checks to battle the recession. It spent $168 billion in total. It rebated taxes on the first $6,000 of income for individuals or their first $12,000 of income for couples. Stimulus checks were mailed out as follows. Individual taxpayers received up to $600. Married couples were eligible for up to $1,200. Households with children received $300 per dependent child. Rebates were reduced for higher incomes at $75,000 for individuals and $150,000 for couples. 20 million retirees on Social Security and disabled veterans also received checks for $300 if they earned at least $3,000 in benefits in 2007. Couples received $600. Although the Bush economic stimulus package was signed in 2008 with the intention of preventing a recession, it failed to make much of a difference. What's more, it created a $5 billion budget deficit. Which worked better? The ARRA sent out less than $96 billion in stimulus checks distributed by the Bush tax rebate. But the ARRA dispersed the checks between May and October of 2009. That's two months faster than the Bush stimulus checks. They were sent out between May and December of 2008. That put money in people's hands sooner. It should have turned the recession around quicker. Unfortunately, many people didn't realize they had received the tax cut. They expected checks in the mail, and as a result, they didn't spend the extra money because it didn't feel like a bonus. The self-employed and others who made estimated payments didn't get their tax cuts until April 2010. They received a total of $20 billion when they paid their 2009 taxes. They also received tax relief in 2010. That totaled $66 billion. Many of these small business owners didn't notice the tax cut. By the time they received it, the recession was over. They should have gotten a tax break sooner so they could have used it to hire workers. So that's the end of that article. What was my point of bringing this article? Um, nobody was talking about it bankrupting the United States government when they were sending out all these tax, um, excuse me, when they was giving all this tax relief and sending out all these stimulus checks. So don't tell, don't come at me and don't let anyone come at you and say, oh, this is going to bankrupt the United States. No, no, no. It's a stimulus. Because as the AA, excuse me, the ARRA proved it saved the economy the U.S. economy. And it was done more than once. As they were just saying, Bush 
his his uh, stimulus um, package did not get out to the people quick enough to make a difference. So they followed it up with what the Obama administration did. And of course, Congress was involved. So I don't want to hear that stuff about bankrupting the United States. You know, uh, you can find the money to spend uh, in uh, in in your budget, you can find it. You can cut that. You can cut some of that unnecessary military budget. You can uh, forfeit sending out billions of dollars to these foreign nations. You know, you know Israel and Egypt uh, get the most in foreign aid. And I'm also and going to include not just U.S. dollars, but military packages and what have you. That's still costing the U.S. taxpayer. So they can find the money. And if we want to go by the, uh, again, what it was the name of this act, the um, American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, um, there's your answer right there. No, it didn't. It did not bankrupt the United States. Okay. And then, you know, that's not my concern, though. That's not my concern. I do not care if the United States breaks up and goes the way of the old Soviet Union. Okay. I, I really don't care. I really don't care. I would see that as an opportunity to create something better in its place. Okay. So that's not my concern, but the data, the data pretty much speaks to me and saying, no, it will actually help the U.S. economy. All right. So let me move on. Oh, by the way, if you have a question or a comment, you can give us a call at 704-802-5056. Hit the star key twice. Um, that'll signal me and um, just watch your background noise. Now. On BTR Community, I asked a question. That's where you'll find the thread um, that has all these articles that I'm sharing with you now. If you want to read them in their entirety later, although I did just read that entire article about stimulus checks. Um, but if you want to refer other people to the articles, that's where you can find them. And I'll grab the link and send it to those people. Um, now. I asked the question, um, I posted this yesterday to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com, the press conference uh, that says, watch Bernie Sanders unveil a quote-unquote revolutionary plan to eliminate $1.6 trillion in student loan debt. And, and this will further illustrate that they can find the money, they can come up with creative ways, you know, we can rescind the Trump tax cuts, all these billionaires and corporations ain't ain't pay, paying nothing in taxes. Make them pay it, you know. But anyway, they, you can find the money. So I thought, I asked the question, would black people be helped by this? And why did I ask that question? And obviously, the question would be yes. It would definitely help my sister um, who's, who has these student loans and struggling um, you know, to make ends meet, having to work more than one job. And, you know, man, it's people out here struggling. And, um, you know, she went to school to be a teacher and um, she's managing, she's a manager in a, a hotel uh, right now um, while school is out. So anyway, 
I thought that this was important for people to hear. So I want to share it on air and, you know, in case you didn't go to Black Talk Radio Network to watch it, but you should pay attention. Um, I want to play it in its entirety because you have a couple of um, uh, student uh, debtors um, who share their personal stories that, you know, just put a real life human face on this problem. So, um, you know, I've heard people say, well, some people say, and again, I, I'm, I'm not trying to mock anybody. I'm not trying to belittle them, but, you know, reparations is an issue, it, it's, but it cannot be a singer voter issue. Okay. It can't be the sole issue if you vote, because a lot of these people don't even vote. That's running around saying no reparations, no vote. You know, no tangibles, no vote. A lot of them don't vote to begin with. Okay? And some of it be maybe because they don't believe in the process. Others, it may be because they've been disenfranchised as felons. You know, uh, got caught up in the prison slavery um, that's going on in the United States. And, you know, as a means to to further disenfranchise them after they serve their time, they strip them of their voting rights. They never uh, strip them of um, uh, their obligation to pay taxes, but they'll strip them of their voting rights. But I digress. Let me um, pull up this video press conference, let you hear it, hear the audio to it. It is posted if you want to share it um, on blacktalkradionetwork.com, and we're going to really listen to okay. it. Uh, thank you all very much for coming out today. Uh, I don't often use the phrase, uh, but today we are in fact offering a revolutionary proposal, a proposal that will transform and improve our country in many, many ways. In a highly competitive global economy, when we need the best educated workforce in the world, this proposal will make it possible for every person in America to get all of the education they need, regardless of their financial status. This means not only a college education, but the right to enter a trade school, the right to learn how to become a carpenter or a plumber or a sheet metal worker, and get one of the many important jobs that keep our society going. In other words, we will make a full and complete education a human right in America to which all of our people are entitled. This means making public colleges, universities, and HBCUs tuition-free and debt-free by tripling the work-study program, expanding Pell Grants, and other financial incentives. Today, we are entering a proposal which will allow every person in this country to get all of the education that they need to live out their dreams because they are Americans. Further, in the wealthiest country in the history of the world, it is simply not acceptable that our younger generation through no fault of their own, will have a lower standard of living than their parents, more debt, lower wages, and less likelihood of owning their own homes. That is why this proposal 
completely eliminates student debt in this country and ends the absurdity of sentencing an entire generation, the millennial generation, to a lifetime of debt for the crime of doing the right thing, and that is going out and getting a higher education. Ten years ago, <clears throat> the United States government bailed out Wall Street after their greed, their recklessness, and their illegal behavior drove us into the worst recession in modern history. Today, the major Wall Street banks are larger than ever, their profits are soaring, and their CEOs receive huge compensation packages. Our proposal, which costs $2.2 trillion over 10 years, will be fully paid for by a tax on Wall Street speculation similar to what exists in dozens of countries around the world. The American people bailed out Wall Street. Now it is time for Wall Street to come to the aid of the middle class of this country. This Wall Street tax will have the added benefit of controlling Wall Street recklessness and reducing the likelihood of another major economic crash. In 1944, as World War II was coming to an end, the U.S. government did the right thing and passed the GI Bill, which made higher education free to all of those who served in the armed forces. That act not only improved the financial well-being of millions of men and women, but it also laid the groundwork for a great expansion of the American middle class. Okay, um, I didn't plan on doing this, but I will uh, stop when I want to make points. And I want to correlate this with, again, reparations. Um, forgive me, um, not that I need to apologize for focusing on uh, African American Recovery Act in this country, but that's evidence right there. A lot of people in, in Bernie Sanders, and I've tweeted at Sanders, not that I expect a reply, but when he talks about the great social programs that FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt set up um, after World War II, that GI Bill he's talking about, uh, even though African Americans served in World War II and helped liberate Europe, they were excluded from that. They they were discriminated against that. Note how he says it laid the foundation for the future middle class. And not you know, not only the GI Bill, but he had a whole bunch of other programs and, and what have you. But it excluded African Americans. That's the US government. So it's not reparations isn't just about slavery. Okay? It's about intentional harm, intentional racism by the US government towards a certain group of its citizens. Because remember these people, those African Americans at that time were not exempt from paying taxes. So they funded all of that stuff for one specific group, white people, Hans Bader. Y'all know who Hans Bader is? Check out the podcast from yesterday's broadcast. All right, so let me allow Mr. Sanders to continue. In the 1960s and 1970s, 
the federal government and state governments invested heavily in higher education with the result that college tuition was virtually free, virtually free for millions of young people. Forty years ago, a federal Pell Grant paid for nearly 80 percent of tuition, fees, room and board at a four-year college. Well, unfortunately, things have changed over the years and changed in a bad way. Today, it will cost over $21,000 each and every year to attend some of these very same schools, which 50 years ago were virtually free. Today, Pell Grants cover only 30% of college expenses. And here are the results of federal and state higher education cutbacks. Today, the average college senior graduates with about $30,000 in student debt, and one out of six seniors will graduate with over $50,000 in debt. The situation is even worse for African-American and Latino families. And at a time when we desperately need more doctors and dentists and nurses, those who are graduating medical school and dental school and nursing school are finding themselves in some cases with three or four hundred thousand dollars in debt. And here is a sad truth, another sad truth regarding this whole crisis. Many students are dropping out of college, not getting their degrees, and yet they still find themselves with tens of thousands of dollars in debt. Let's be clear. The millennial generation was told that the only way they would get the good jobs available is if they received a college education. Unfortunately, that turned out to be bad advice. It was wrong. Since 2000, the cost of attending a public college has nearly doubled. Meanwhile, the bottom 60% of college graduates earn less money than those who graduated college did 19 years ago and wages for the average college graduate have stagnated. Today, 34% of Americans 25 and older have a college degree, but only 26% of them in our country, 26% of those jobs require a college education. The result is that many millions of young people today are forced to work at low-wage jobs. Their standard of living is going down while they are struggling to pay off their outrageously high level of student debt. Bottom line is we should not be punishing people for getting a higher education. It is time to hit the reset button. Under the proposal that we introduced today, all student debt would be canceled in six months. By taking this action, by taking this action, we not only provide immediate financial relief, to 45 million Americans who have $1.6 trillion in debt, but we will be improving the entire economy. According to a recent study, canceling all student debt would add an estimated $1 trillion to our economy over the next decade and create up to 1.5 million jobs. Let me just conclude by giving you a tale of two crises. Ten years ago, because of their greed and illegal behavior, Wall Street banks were on the verge of collapse, and the United States Congress, with taxpayer assistance, came to their aid. 
Well, now we got millions and millions of families in this country who are struggling with outrageous levels of student debt. And maybe instead of just worrying about Wall Street, we start worrying about those families and that generation and give them a break. So this is for those families, this is for those young people, this is for the economy, and this is for justice. And that is what we are proposing. Thank you all very much. Okay, now you're going to hear from a couple of more representatives, and I think this is a very important um, bill, very important press conference, but again, I want to relate it to the conversation of reparations. See, a reparation study hasn't even been, or commission to study the issue hasn't even been set up. So I would assume that a study, let's let's just say we're talking 1.6 trillion is what a reparation uh, package for African Americans would cost. Now, here's Bernie Sanders saying that if we provide the a study has been done that if we eliminate this 1.6 trillion in debt by taxing Wall Street, who got a who got a bailout? I don't know how much how much that bailout was. I could look it up, but for sake of time, I'm not. You can look it up. But what did he say? He said that it would have a positive impact on the economy by canceling all this debt. You, it, the study said it would also create 1.2 million jobs. I believe is the figure that he said. I submit to you that a stimulus package a.k.a. reparations for African Americans will have a similar impact. So don't believe these people who are lying to you, feeding you misinformation and disinformation and using scare tactics and and all this and that, um, lying to try to even stop a commission to study the issue from even being set up. Because that's what H.R. 40 does. And again, I want to say that uh, as far as I know, uh, Sanders is the only one who said that if he's president he and Congress passes H.R. 40, that he will sign it into law so that they can set up the commission, gather the documentation, the evidence that you owe reparations. Y'all can get some of that information from the U.N. reparation panel that looked exclusively, exclusively at the United States. Y'all can get some of that information from them. And then come up with a, sec, uh, a, a set of recommendations with accompanying studies, I, I would presume, of how it would actually help the economy. So as I said before, um, for those people um, using these racial arguments, I'm talking about suspected racists and what have you. Why should I have to pay for uh, whatever? You're going to benefit from it, okay? Because that money's going to go right back into the economy. Just like the stimulus checks that without help the U.S. economy pulled it back from the brink of destruction. Just like this study that Sanders is citing of canceling $1.6 trillion in debt and paying for it by making Wall Street pay for it with taxes, um, you know, will help the economy. All right, so let me take a quick station identification break Um, because I don't want to interrupt the next speaker. But again, if you have any questions or comment, you know the phone number. Give us a call, 
and you can weigh in. So I'm going to take the station short station identification break instead of waiting to the top of the hour and uh, go ahead and uh, continue with this press conference. You're listening to Black Talk Radio News with Scotty Reed. I broadcast this program Monday through Fridays from, uh, starting at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. We'll be back on the other side. No, it really isn't. Because, see, people are thinking in terms of, well, they want to brag about being black, which means that they are implying that there's something incorrect about being white, even though these are the creations of the creator. See, and then so everybody gets into this black pride thing or white pride thing, and people immediately start taking sides. It's not about taking sides based on black and white. It's about taking sides based on justice and non-justice. Well, that's what you're really aiming for. Being black doesn't mean anything if you don't believe in justice. And being white doesn't mean anything if you don't believe in justice, except you mean in, you believe in non-justice. And that doesn't make any difference what shade you are or how tall you are or who your cousin was or anything like that or what so-called nationality you have. Like a lot of people say that they take pride in being an Englishman or take pride in being a Frenchman or take pride in being Afrocentric. Well, you're not supposed to be proud of any of those things if you don't believe in justice because these words mean nothing. No nationality means anything. And, And waving a flag if you don't believe in not mistreating people. You've got to believe in not mistreating people, and you've got to believe in helping people that need help the most. Otherwise, you don't even have any business breathing. Hi, the Black Talk Media Project would like to invite you to become a member of the BTR Community subscription-based social media platform. BTR Community is a platform that was set up for the listening audience of Black Talk Radio Network, the number one independent black radio network online. For just $24 per year, your subscription gives you access to an interactive space to share information with like-minded people with your privacy guaranteed. Your subscription will go a long way to help us maintain and improve our current media platforms. It will also help provide a budget so that we can begin the task of establishing localized media centers and radio stations across the United States. The best way to show your support and appreciation for what we do here at Black Talk Radio is to subscribe. Help us to help you be informed. Join btrcommunity.com today. Good morning, everybody. My name is Pramila Jayapal. I'm proud to represent Washington's 7th Congressional District and to be the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. And I want to start just by thanking Senator Sanders, who back in 2015 was the only person at the federal level, at the national level, talking about a real solution for the student debt crisis. It was a part of my campaign. At that time, I was in the Washington State Senate. And I quickly, when I came to Congress, was proud to stand with the senator as we introduced last cycle's College for All uh, bill. 
And we are now today, it is sizzling hot today, and this is a sizzling hot proposal. And I'm looking at all these young people's faces over here and seeing the incredible hope and opportunity that exists when we pass this proposal. Let me also thank my colleague, Representative Ilhan Omar, who is our whip for the Congressional Progressive Caucus in the House. And together, she and I will be introducing the two companion bills that make up Senator Sanders' bill in the Senate. None of this would be possible without the incredible organizing across the country. Students who have been rallying on their campuses, teachers, advocates, unions that have been saying we must address the scale and the magnitude of this crisis. So let's just talk about the future. My child just graduated from college and like thousands of students across the country celebrated their college gradu graduations, most of them are contemplating a lifetime of debt. Since 2015, when I first met Bernie and we were talking about this issue, Total student debt in this country has gone from $1.2 trillion to $1.52 trillion. It has increased incredibly, almost two and a half times over the last decade, from $600 billion to the current $1.5 trillion. And over the past three decades, the cost of attaining a college degree because of decades of austerity spending, where we spend on other things like military defense, many other things, GOP tax cuts under Republican control. Unfortunately, the cost of attaining a college degree has increased more than $1,000. So let's be clear about what this means. We are incentivizing our young people to not go and get a higher education. We are telling them to not go and get a trade or a vocational skill or a four-year degree that will allow them to build a decent life. And even though we know we depend on these next generations to be our innovators, our creators, to carry jobs that allow them to have a future and buy homes and cars and build our economy, instead we are putting out a giant trap for people to walk into. And as a nation, we are killing ourselves by draining the enthusiasm, innovation, creativity, and potential of our next generation. And let's be clear that it doesn't just affect millennials. The fastest growing group of people with student debt in this country is grandparents, people over 60. People in their 30s have the most percentage of the student debt held. And of course our millennials are looking at a future that does not have hope. 60% of white students across our country have student debt burdens, students of color even more. 87% of black students have to borrow to attend a four-year college. And African-American women who graduate with a college degree are paying about 111% of their first year salary in student loans. So anyone thinking about going to college today has to be asking these questions. They've gotta be looking at the trade-offs and saying, do I go and get a higher education? which I know I need, by the way, in order to get a job that is going to sustain me and my family. But if I do, I know I'm coming out with mountains of debt. Or do I forgo that training and skills and just hope that somehow I can find a job that allows me to build for the future? My constituents, all of our constituents, have been writing us with their horror stories, which, by the way, are confirmed by the Federal Reserve, which says that people are putting off buying homes and cars and even getting married or having kids because they can't afford it.
And just yesterday I was out buying something and the person who was helping me told me that she has $60,000 in student loan debts. And she said, but don't tell my story alone, tell my sister's story. Her sister struggled with addiction. And so in her second year of college, after two years, she dropped out so she could take care of herself, get her clean, get herself clean, which she did. She came back, she worked a full-time job at a minimum wage salary, and she went to college full-time online. She got through all of that, and guess what she's saddled with now? $100,000 in debt. It's unacceptable. And so today, this proposal is a way to address all of that. The college affordability crisis isn't just about tuition. And in this proposal, we make sure that we increase Pell Grant funding, we expand that funding, we triple work study, as, as uh, Senator Sanders said, and taken together, we will provide debt relief for the 44 million people who have existing debt, and we will free the future. In a federal-state partnership, the House College for All Act completely em eliminates tuition and fees at public colleges, community colleges, trade schools, or apprenticeship programs. As the Senator said, we continue to invest in HBCUs and minority institutions, in tribal colleges. We make sure we take care of everybody, and in the end, we make sure that we stop profiteering off of student loans. Let's free the generations to come, Let's invest in our future. Let's be bold and revolutionary and create real opportunity. Thank you. All right. I want to stop it there um, because she spoke directly uh, to the question that I posted in BTR community, would black people be helped by this? And so as she stated, the statistic, 87%. African-Americans are saddled with this debt. And then also, let me point back to the previous administration. Um, you know, Barack Obama's administration, and um, they cut Pell Grants. They reduced Pell Grants, and, and it disproportionately harmed HBCUs. That, that was an act of injustice. That was an act of injustice. So again, like Mr. Fuller was saying during the break, you know, um, if you don't believe in practicing justice, your skin color don't mean nothing. The fact, you know, Mitch McConnell, that there was a black president is not reparations, uh, especially when that administration did things that, um, um, you know, disproportionately harmed uh, African-Americans aspirations for higher education as well as harmed um, these historically black colleges and universities. So we're going to hear from Ilhan Omar next, uh, the representative out of Minnesota, um, who is a Somali. I believe she's an immigrant from Somali, uh, Somalia, I should say. But that's who we're going to hear speak next. Thank you so much to uh, Senator, Sand Senator Sanders and um, Congresswoman Chaya Paul for um, joining us to introduce this revolutionary idea. I stand before you on behalf of 45 million Americans, 
45 million people who feel they can't purchase their first home, 45 million people who feel like they can't start a family, 45 million people who have dreams of opening up a business or going to public service but are held back by a mountain of debt, 45 million who are wondering if they can retire because of the loans they took out for themselves or on behalf of their children. They are the debt generation. Many of them played by the rules, followed the advice of our parents, our leaders, uh, and got an education. We are told going to college opens a world of opportunity, but far too many, it's accompanied by a world of anxiety, stress, and never-ending debt. We are told by some politicians that this debt is our fault that if we want to achieve the American dream, we have to lift ourselves up by our bootstraps. Well, we're here today to say, student debt is not the result of bad choices or behavior. It is the result of a system that tells students to get an education and go to college in order to have a stable life, but then does not provide the resources to afford that education. It is the result of a two-tiered education system, one for the rich whose families can afford tens of thousands of dollars for higher education, and another for the poor and the middle class who have to pay off that education for the rest of their lives. America's collective debt now sits at almost $1.6 trillion. Nearly 45 million Americans now have student debt, and the amount of debt an average student carries is rising. Young adults who graduated college with student debt now have a negative net worth with medium net uh, worth that is less than the 90,000 it was uh, in 2013. And parents are increasingly jeopardizing their retirement to pay off loans they took out on behalf of their kids so they can go to college. The scourge of student debt does not affect all Americans equally. Students of color face a higher risk of defaulting on their loans and struggle to find jobs to pay off these loans due to discriminatory hiring practices. First-generation and immigrant college students face much higher rates of default. And women who already face a wage gap and workplace discrimination owe two-thirds of a total student loan debt. That's why when I ran for Congress, I was asked over and over again, why is Washington ignoring this crisis? And what will I do to help fix it? And I promised them that I would do everything in my power to end the scorch of student debt once and for all. And so today, I am excited to join my colleagues in keeping that promise. What my bill does is simple as it is revolutionary, as Senator Sanders says. It cancels all of 1.6 trillion student loan debt. No exceptions, no questions asked, full cancellation. Americans will no longer wonder if they can buy a home or start a family or open a business or retire. You might ask, why full cancellation? What about the people who can pay off their student debt? Well, let me say this. The children of Donald Trump aren't asking or taking out student loans. 
canceling student debt is a problem of the poor and the middle class, not of the rich. So rather than making exceptions, let's end this crisis entirely once and for all. You might also ask who will pay for it? Well, economic estimate that forgiving student debt will generate up to a trillion dollars in economic activity. But we can go a step farther. And as I always say, Americans, America does not suffer from scarcity, we suffer from greed. So we can ask speculators on Wall Street to pay a small financial transaction tax, which would fully fund student loan forgiveness over 10 years. The American people bailed out Wall Street. It's time for Wall Street to bail out the American people. So today is a proud moment. Since 2015, Senator Sanders has been talking about this crisis, offering a solution, and now we have the momentum to go forward. And I'm really excited about this opportunity. Thank you so much. All right, so that was uh, Representative Ilhan Omar uh, out of Minnesota. And I'm, I'm glad she mentioned institutional racism, uh, job discrimination pays. Uh, and I would also say paid discrimination also plays into um, why African-Americans, black people are disproportionately affected um, by all of this student debt. Um, also, I noticed that she said, and I'm, look, I think I've made myself clear um, for those who probably don't know. I do not believe in abortions. I don't want to pay for no abortions. But she kept saying that, you know, cause of this student loan debt is the reason why many people decide not to start families. Now, I had shared some data from a study that was done a couple of, a few years ago that, that asked women who were getting abortions why they were getting abortions and 73% of them said because they couldn't afford to take care of the child. They couldn't afford to start a, a family. So that's why I push back hard against Elizabeth Warren and Democrats, including all of these Democrats who want to provide federal funding by eliminating the Hyde Act, the Hyde Act, does allow for federal funds to be used for abortions in case of incest, rape, and, um, you know, to save the life of the mother. So it's incorrect to say no federal dollars go towards abortion. But what's more important to me, you know, I heard Elizabeth Warren saying that poor women, um, you know, um, shouldn't, how did she put it? She said that poor women should not be sentenced to poverty by forcing them to have children. Look, that's not why they impoverished. They impoverished, if we're talking African-Americans cause of racism, a.k.a. white supremacy, some of the stuff Ilhan Omar just brought up, okay? And so, you know, I'm not saying, you know, even though I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't care if Roe v. Wade was uh, overturned, okay? I'm just going to be real with y'all. We're not going to agree on everything, but I try to look at a common sense approach because it's unlikely that it will be overturned. So how do we reduce abortions? By reducing poverty, by reducing student debt. And, you know, uh, uh, if you're 
pay African-American women the reparations stimulate a uh, stimulus check that they deserve, then they won't have to uh, make these choices um, between life and death because we are talking life and death, okay? When you're talking about terminating a pregnancy, you're talking about terminating life. And poor women should not have to make those choices. Rich women don't make those choices. I'm just giving you the flip the flip side of uh, Elizabeth Warren's argument. Rich women can have as many children as they like because they can afford them. Okay? And they can also afford some of the best forms of birth control. So I, I'd rather see federal dollars go towards student debt relief so that these people who want to start families can start families as one of the benefits um, to this bill. But she also cited this study. And again, I'm going to keep comparing this to a reparation stimulus package for African Americans. She said by relieving this $1.6 trillion in debt, that that would generate, according to a study, $1 trillion in economic activity in the U.S. economy. Same thing applies to reparations. So again, I don't want to hear no arguments about whether we can afford it or what it'll do to the economy because all this money you have given away um, has certainly benefited the econ economy, according to y'all. That's according to y'all, all right? And, and, and then on the subject also, they keep mentioning Wall Street. Let's not forget Wall Street's role in the slave trade prior to 1865. Let's not forget forget these banks' role in modern-day prison slavery and human trafficking. If you, if you got money in, in Bank of America, if you got money in Wells Fargo, just to name a few, you should immediately withdraw your money from those banks and find a prison slavery-free bank to deposit your money in. If you're an abolitionist, you most definitely have to take take this plan. But speaking of Wall Street, they benefited from slavery. Okay, Wells Fargo was created in 1850. And yes, they profited from the pre-1865 uh, slave trade in this country. And they continued to profit from the enslavement of primarily non-white people, primarily black people, but non-white people in general, and then American, uh, U.S. citizens in general. Let Wall Street propose uh, uh, some more taxes on these corporations, especially with these ones with the ties to uh, our enslavement and oppression. Again, they can pay for it. They can pay for it just like they... Uh, come up with ways to pay for these things like they're talking about today. But I still will submit to you that African Americans should be the number one supporter of this bill because it would disproportionately help you. We're the ones saddled with the most debt. All right, let me continue. Or should I say let them continue? Hi everyone, I'm so excited here today. What a beautiful day to liberate ourselves from student debt. What a beautiful day to liberate our future generations from the scourge of for-profit education. And by that we also mean for-profit student loan debt as well. 
Uh, this is so. This is such an important issue because this is not just about our future generations and our current generations, but this is about our entire economy. We are experiencing a systemic and economy-wide threat to grinding to grinding our our economy to a halt because. Families and people in my generation, older and younger, are not buying cars, we're not purchasing homes, we are not building families because of the scepter that student loan debt represents on our generation. It is unjust and it is a burden that no generation before had to encounter to the scale and the level that ours has. Uh, I think so much about this moment when I was in college and uh, I was mentoring this girl, that this young woman, her name was Andrea, she was about three or four years younger than me. But I was about 19 years old and she was in high school. And she had gotten into all of these prestigious universities, but she was given no uh, student loan assistance, no real, she was given no um, scholarships. All of her student aid was presented to her in the form of loans. And she came from a solid middle-class family. She was not exceedingly wealthy. And, uh, and so she really, she got into her dream college, but her dream college offered her no scholarships, just loans. And she truly felt, at 16, 17 years old, she felt that the decision of college was so important that she felt that she needed to consider taking on $250,000 worth of debt to go to college. And she's 17 years old, and here I am calling her from my dormitory, a 19-year-old consulting a 17-year-old about a $250,000 loan debt situation. And I think that in and of itself illustrates the absurdity of our education financing system. That alone illustrates it. Because what we tell 17-year-olds all the time is that you are not old enough or responsible enough to drink. You are not old enough or responsible enough to vote. You are not old enough or responsible enough to serve in our military. But you are old enough and responsible enough to take on a quarter million dollars worth of debt. And that is wrong. It is not right. Not only is that what we are telling uh, children now, minors now, but that's what we have told them for decades. And it has resulted in a crisis that we have seen today. Now people are in their 30s and, and older that have taken on insurmountable amounts of debt because we have sold them an empty bill of goods. And what we need to do is make it right. And that is why we have to both make public colleges tuition free and forgive all student loan debt at the same time. And, uh, and I will be completely honest, I will disclose my, my personal stake in this fight because I have student loans too. And I think it's so funny, a year ago, I was waiting tables in a restaurant and it was literally easier for me to become the youngest woman in American history elected to Congress than it is to pay off my student loan debt. So that should tell you everything about the state of, this, of, this, uh, of, of our economy and the state of quality of life for working people. Because in order for me to get a chance to have health care, in order for me to get a chance to pay off my student loans, I had to do something that was nearly impossible. And I don't think that that is the bar 
through which a person should be able to access education, healthcare, and a bevy of other things that should be considered human rights. And this bill, and I'm so excited to be introducing this bill with Senator Sanders, Congresswoman uh, Omar, and Congresswoman Jayapal to make sure that we start in embarking on the solutions to these problems. So uh, thank you very much, and thank you all for giving me. Uh, Randy Weingarten is the president of one of the great unions in this country, the American Federation of Teachers, 1.7 million members. Randy. So, um, you know, AOC was on one of our... You know, I want to jump ahead, though, because uh, I don't want to let all these people play everything that's being said, but I want to jump ahead to this uh, black woman because um, I thought she gave a very powerful testimony. So let me jump ahead to, to her. Okay. Hello. My name is Pam Hunt. I have $212,000 of student debt, 51,000 of which is interest alone. I stand before you as a person who pursued a higher degree and was made worse off because of it. I am a proud single parent, and like so many parents, I have worked hard to make sure that my children have the best lives that they can have. I came to Washington, D.C. in 2015 as one of the first student debt strikers in U.S. history. We organized for years, and as a result, some debtors won relief, although I haven't. Over the last four and a half years, I have struggled financially due to my student debt burden. I lost my home and nearly lost my life in a fight against cancer. But you know what I haven't lost? These illegitimate and immoral student loans that are still haunting me. You know what else I also haven't lost? I haven't lost myself or my desire to fight. I am here to fight no matter how long it takes for full debt cancellation and an education system that treats us with dignity and as equals an education system that's worth fighting for. Right now, many people are not paying back their student loans because they cannot afford to. I've heard that we can't afford to let people go to school for free, but from where I stand, we can't afford not to. I have three daughters who, within the past four years, have graduated from college with Bachelor of Science degrees. Each is starting life with $50,000 plus in student loan debt. None of them are employed in their field of study, and all of them are on income-based repayment because their income doesn't afford them the, the ability to make monthly payments. That's just my three daughters, three stories among countless others. Partial debt forgiveness won't cut it. Even erasing $50,000 would still leave me with a balance of $162,000 in student debt. I am not asking for forgiveness. I am seeking justice. The only justice is full debt cancellation. As a debt collective member and one of the first student debt strikers in U.S. history, I am here to remind you 
that we are not going away. We are going to build power and liberate ourselves from this crisis. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, I'm, I'm going to leave it there. Um, I, I thought it was important that y'all hear this African-American woman um, speak. Lost her home. Uh, wow. I, I just can't imagine all that debt. Now, also, though, I also want to push back. I, I got some breaking news for you. Um, but before I get to this breaking news, I want to push back against there's a black outlet um, that I saw putting out some information that I'm going to call it. I'm going to call it anti-education. That's what it would, that's how it read to me and saying, you know, uh, uh, do you think going to college is the only way to become successful in this country? Now, no, it's not sure. Bill Cosby never went to college. He went to Hollywood. You know, he became a stand up comedian, then became a media mogul. He didn't go to college. Um, let me see, uh, Daryl Dawkins, a former NBA player, never went to college. He was drafted straight to the pros. And what, listen, we, it, it, that's just so anti-intellectual because while you don't have to go to college to become a successful entrepreneur, it surely helps. <laughs> it surely helps to get that extra training, that extra education and what have you so just cause a few people become multi-millionaires or even billionaires in cases of rappers you know like jay-z and what have you and i don't know if they even went back to college or, or what have you um but that is not the argument that we need to be making oh you don't have to go to college to become successful um no 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 we're not gonna go there um you're more likely to be successful if you get in education. If this bill was to pass, I'm telling y'all, I'm going back to school uh, um, when it passed. I'm going back to school. I'm going to go to my community college, which has a broadcast school, okay? Um, I'm pretty much self-taught. Actually, I invented the way that we broadcast our radio programs using mixers and cables and, and wiring them to... Um, a computer, but there's a lot more that I could learn about broadcasting if I went to my local community college, if I could afford to go and um, get that two-year degree in uh, broadcasting. Some things that I could pick up. I almost went to a for-profit broadcasting school, but I reckon I went on a tour. They got a campus in Charlotte. I went on a tour and when it got down to the financials, I immediately recognized it as a scam. When they took me on the tour, I'm like, the stuff y'all talking about showing me, I already know how to do. So why should I pay you all this money and go into debt to teach me something I already know? You know? So, so man, um, we don't, we don't want to be anti-education. Okay? We, we want to be able to attain higher education, more in-debt knowledge. And that's one of the reasons why Americans, or I, I got to quit saying Americans, I keep hearing it, U.S. citizens are some of the, how can I say this without being offensive or, or what have you? They are some of the less informed people in the world. 
They are not equipped with critical thinking skills, especially when we're talking about black people who have been been affected so much by centuries of institutional racism, especially in the area of education. We're fed so much misinformation. I don't even know if the internet is a blessing or a curse these days. Because you got people out here that's making up stuff and and getting followings. And I'm like, man, if you was able to critically think about something, you wouldn't fall for these scams. That's, That's a result of lack of education. Comprehension. Reading comprehension is a problem. You know, for people who don't who uh, don't go to higher education, not saying that you got to have a college degree to have a good reading comprehension. But years ago, I read that the majority of people only have somewhere between an eighth grade and a 12th grade reading comprehension level. That's sad. And that preps them to become victims of so many things. So I support this bill wholeheartedly I, I support it it will help my sister it will help my children um, who made a decision that look uh, even though they got accepted into college we looked at the, the financial plans no we're not going to go into that kind of debt okay so um, it's just a shame that we have that poor people middle class people have to make that choice of, of whether or not they can go get an education based on their uh, how much wealth they have. And then another thing I want to say um, on the lines of wealth before I get to this breaking news. Um, can we stop pretending like African Americans got a trillion dollars collectively in wealth? Because we don't. Okay? We do not. Spending money, I mean, spending currency ain't the same thing as having money. Okay? A lot of that, a lot of that currency is going towards what? Debt. Paying off debt. Paying bills, your day-to-day bill. I got to pay the electric bill today. Okay? I got to pay the electric bill today. Um, I think the cable bill was due yesterday, so I got to pay it today. So, that one trillion, what they calling in spending power, ain't wealth. And again, this goes directly to, and I'm speaking to my brothers and sisters out there, this goes directly to us not being able to critically think. And we latch on to things that sound good, but then when you put them under the microscope, they don't add, it doesn't add up. We as a people do not have a trillion dollars in wealth. Collectively, we don't. Less than 3% of African Americans even own land in this country. Like I was telling uh, uh, my mom about her and her sisters, I mean, excuse me, her siblings that's still alive. It's only one that's still alive. But um, no, it's more than one. I'm sorry. Um, But in cousins and stuff that own land, I said, y'all wealthy. Compared to most African Americans, most African Americans can't say they own any parcel of land, let alone the land that y'all family holds collectively. So we need to stop it with the myths that we have a, a trillion dollars in wealth. Spending power is not wealth because a lot of that spending is on bills for us to live day to day. 
to have electricity, to have a car, going on car notes, going on insurance. That's a myth. That's a myth. So that's another reason to support this because African-Americans are disproportionately affected by this huge amount of student loan debt. Going to take a station identification break. Let me go to this breaking news. Already you got central, centrist neoliberal Democrats um, with the organization Third Way that just put out an article. I just came across it. They put it out 23 hours ago. So they mean while while this press conference on eliminating student 1.6 trillion in student debt that would benefit the economy would create jobs. Here you got Third Way, which is a think tank. Uh, third, this is how they describe themselves. Third Way is a centrist think tank that offers fresh thinking and modern solutions to the most challenging problems in U.S. public policy. Now, these are the people that supported Hillary Clinton. These are the people that support your Joe Bidens. You know, Joe Biden was talking about the other day how he could work with Republicans, even if they was racist, segregationists, and what. Well, we know you can, Joe. That's how we got the Clinton crime bill that you wrote. Okay, that's how you, you man. The Democratic Party during the nineties certainly worked with the Republican Party to harm a lot of people in this country. So. Here, here's what Third Way is putting out. Free college for all is regressive. Blanket debt forgiveness could actually increase inequality. And they get, I'm looking at their tweets and they're getting mocked. Oh, I mean, they're getting mocked in all of these threads. Um, here's a guy that I follow, uh, uh, Arami Osifo Frimpong. He has a YouTube channel. Um, I sometimes post his videos to Black Talk Radio Network. He says, I don't even get this. That's like saying Social Security is regressive. Next, I'll hear that a federal job guarantee is regressive. Man, I mean, saying that we just heard from this black woman with 200 and something thousand in debt, student loan debt alone. I imagine she's still paying off her cancer treatment if she didn't have insurance to cover it. And even if she did have insurance, you know, it depends on what them co-pays was looking like. So you're telling us that if we forgive all of this student debt with a study has shown would add to the U.S. economy, create 1.2 million jobs, is going to increase inequality. But you know what? It's some people that have fall for that. Why? Because they haven't had access to college to increase their comprehend, reading comprehension skills, to increase their uh, uh, critical thinking skills. I'm like, my, you know, I, I already knew about Third Way. Again, they're back in Biden um, in, in the Democratic uh, nomination race. And um, here's one of the reasons why. Because Biden's a centrist who ain't got a problem with supporting Wall Street, um, robbing poor people and what have you. So I don't know what's up. I know we can't put a lot of stock in polls and what have you, uh, especially this this early in the process. But I've been seeing these polls uh, coming out of South Carolina about African-Americans supporting Joe Biden. Give uh, Man. 
those people need help. I'll just leave it leave it like that. Why do you support Joe Biden? It can't be because of his record and the policies that he has written and pushed. So I'll leave it there. I'm going to take a short station identification break and we'll come back. And I have just a few more um, stories to share with you. going to go international. Um, i tell you things are ramping up in that area that they call, refer to as the Middle East. Um, and I, I just don't know, man. Uh, we could go into a shooting war at any time. So um, that's one of the stories I'm going to share with you on the other side of the break. Uh, you're listening to BTR News. My name is Scotty Reed. I broadcast Monday through Friday starting at 11 a.m. Eastern Time right here on BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. Make Black Talk Radio your choice for digital black radio. New black media for the new millennium. There's a story that I shared in BTR community yesterday that I would like to share with you. Um, it's actually some good news. Um, this ties to the criminal injustice system. This ties to prison slavery. And one of the tools that they use to put people in the prison for a long amounts of crime by doing something called stacking charges. Like you commit one crime, but then, like say, let's say I go out here and rob somebody. Well, I'm not going to be hit with just one criminal charge of robbing somebody. I'm going to get hit with three or four or five criminal charges and what have you. And and that is to force me to pl- into a plea bargain. Well, let me say, not don't let me say I go out here and rob somebody. Let's say I get accused and charged with robbing somebody. They'll stack the charges on me and to prevent me from going to trial because they may have a lack of evidence or whatnot. They'll stack all these different charges, which will amount to all this different time I could be looking at. And But, hey, we'll drop these charges if you just plead guilty. You know, and that's why 96% of cases never go to trial. They end up in plea deals, cause of stuff like this. Now, I don't want to minimize crime. That's not what I'm doing. But what I'm trying to point out is a tool that has been used to enslave a lot of people by by just making up criminal charges and stacking them on people so that you can um, you know, make more money off that person's body in that prison cell. So the Supreme Court actually did a good thing um, yesterday. It says uh, President Trump's two. This comes to you from Fox News and Fox News. You know they pandered to conservatives and they're upset with this. <laughs> they, I'm not surprised. They upset with this. President Trump's two Supreme Court picks, Justices Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh, were on opposing sides once again Monday in a case centering on whether a law that slaps harsher penalties on certain gun possession cases is unconstitutionally vague. Gorsuch sided with quote-unquote liberal justices in a 5-4 decision in United States versus Davis for which he wrote the opinion of the court. The law in question calls for longer sentences when a person uses a firearm in connection with a crime of violence, which is defined as a felony, then by its nature involves a substantial risk that physical force against a person or property 
of another may be used in the course of committing the offense. That definition is rather confusing. He was quoting the law. Um, even the government admits that this language provides no reliable way to determine which offenses qualify as crimes of violence and thus is unconstitutionally vague, he wrote. Vague laws leave it to unelected attorneys and judges to determine what acts qualify as crimes, Gorchik said, when it is really Congress' job to make that decision with the laws they pass. In the current case, Maurice Davis and Andrew Glover were convicted of robbery and conspiracy to commit robbery under the Hobbs Act, which covers robbery, attempted robbery, or extortion affecting interstate commerce. They were each hit with longer sentences because robbery and conspiracy were found to be crimes of violence. In appeals court, so they didn't even have a gun. They didn't even have, they didn't even commit acts of violence. Not that they're saying. Okay? But they, they, could have robbed a, a store or something, uh, uh, you know, they didn't involve the store owner being there and conspiring to rob something, you know, like people um, will break into these uh, uh, trains, uh, cars that are carrying goods and stuff, all kind of stuff be going on, um, but not necessarily involving violence. So that's what was at stake. That was what was at question. You don't even have, you haven't even committed an act of violence, but because of the Hobbs Act, you've been hit with longer sentences because the Hobbs Act says you committed violence by committing these certain criminal offenses. So let me restate that. Even the government admits that this language provides no reliable way to determine which offenses qualifies crimes of violence and thus is unconstitutionally vague. They do this stuff on purpose, man. They do it on purpose to keep the prisons full and to keep people in prison longer. So the appeals court, um, it, 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 let me see, it says that an appeals court found that the clause in the statute defining crimes of violence was unconstitutionally vague. And so the Supreme Court upheld that decision. So good on them. Good on them. And again, if you're one of those people that want to uh, believe that laws prevent crime, um, as arguments have been made in this case, no, it doesn't. Ain't no law. There are laws against rape. Is that stopping people from raping people? There's rob uh, laws against killing people, murdering people, even accidentally, not intentionally. Has that stopped any of the loss of life? No, the law provides for punishment. That's what it is not a deterrent. The death penalty doesn't deter anyone from killing anyone. So, you know, this again is just a tool they use to keep the prisons full and keep people in prison longer. If they rob somebody, charge them with robbery. May, let the charges be appropriate. Don't stack charges on them, but we got a long way to go. But again, you know, to the reformers out there, reforming something means that you're repairing something that's broke. The system ain't broke. It's doing what, exactly what it was designed to do. All right, moving on. Uh, Trump. Trump. Um has slapped new sanctions on Iran. Iran president said Trump's White House is afflicted with retardation. Now, I'm going to let you listen to this, this CBS 
morning uh, news clip with Gail, what's her name, Gail King or whatever, Oprah's uh, friend, friend girl, um, I don't know exactly what their relationship is, it ain't none of my business anyway, but anyway, um, I really never watch these, I don't watch a lot of television, I just, you know, listen to the clips and, and what have you that people post to the internet, so Iran's president said something, Iran is lashing I'm, out. Let me uh, let you hear this in response to these new sanctions. At the U.S. over new financial pressure, saying there will be no diplomatic end to the standoff. This morning, Iranian President Hassan Rouhani called new U.S. sanctions outrageous and idiotic, his words. And a spokesman for Iran's foreign ministry said that measures equal a permanent closure for diplomacy. After Iran shot down a U.S. drone last week, President Trump signed an executive order yesterday targeting Iran's supreme leader for the first time. The sanctions block access to the international financial system. Ben Tracy is at the White House. Ben, Iran's president really laid into Mr. Trump. He certainly did not hold back. In an offensive choice of words, he said that the White House is, quote, afflicted by mental retardation. And he mocked President Trump for simultaneously requesting talks and imposing sanctions. So if the strategy here is to use sanctions to force Iran to the negotiating table, so far, it's not working. Who knows what's going to happen? I can only tell you we cannot ever let Iran have a nuclear weapon. Instead of using force, President Trump put on a show of it in the Oval Office, signing the sanctions order in front of the cameras, flanked by his vice president and treasury secretary. The sanctions target Iran's supreme leader and at least eight Iranian military commanders, including the official the U.S. believes is responsible for shooting down an American drone last week. Mr. President, is your goal to negotiate a deal? We would love to be able to negotiate a deal if they want to. If they don't want to, that's fine, too. The U.S. has imposed nearly 1,000 specific sanctions on Iran since pulling out of the nuclear deal, and they are taking a toll on its economy. The value of Iran's currency has dropped 60 percent, and inflation is more than 40 percent. You cannot start a dialogue with somebody who is threatening you, who is intimidating you. On Monday, Iran's ambassador to the U.N. said tensions between the two countries is, quote, really dangerous. Instead of negotiating, Iran is retaliating, allegedly attacking tankers in the Persian Gulf, shooting down the American drone, and threatening to enrich more uranium, the fuel that can be used to make nuclear bombs. What they've sought to do is to try to turn up the heat to see if the president will respond and to see what they can, in fact, get away with. President Trump warns that if he does change his approach, he does not need congressional approval for a strike. I do like keeping them abreast, but I don't have to do it legally. We're going to leave it there. Um, I I really don't like mainstream media. Um, It's a lot of propaganda. Um, But, you know, uh, Bernie Sanders said something about this yesterday when he was asked by another mainstream reporter about uh, Trump not attacking um, the Iran after they shot down that spy drone, which they said into their airspace. And and so, of course, their dispute, uh, obviously, the U.S. is going to claim something um, that it wasn't in their airspace. And so Trump said, well, we were going to do these airstrikes, limited airstrikes, and um, I decided that it would be a disproportionate use of force. It could kill 150 people. But what do you think these sanctions are doing? I saw an article uh, uh, yesterday someone shared about the Venezuela. 
and how all the people that's dying because of U.S. sanctions, and it was saying outside of war. War, sanctions are acts of war. And I'm going to play, um, you know, some of Ron Paul's broadcast from yesterday about U.S. sanctions. If you don't know who Ron Paul is, um, he was a Republican congressman out of Texas for uh, about 20-something years, ran for president twice, might have been three times, because um, I think he ran on a libertarian ticket before he ran for um, on the Republican side. Um, I actually voted, uh, crossed over to vote in the Republican primary for Ron Paul in 2008 because he was talking about an immediate end to the drug war. He was going to get rid of the uh, uh, DEA and what have you. Uh, he's anti-death penalty. He talked about how it disproportionately affected African Americans and, and for another uh, uh of his other policies like economic policies and he understands the value of gold and, and what have you and he doesn't believe in getting in all these foreign entanglements but you know they the powers that be ran a smear job on him and painted him um, as a racist uh, because of some stuff some people he had worked with in the past had, had, had did and you know so I mean show me somebody that a white person that ain't tainted in some fa form or fashion by racism, uh, whether it's them directly or somebody that they close to, all right, or work with, or, or what. Show me that, cause certainly you you know now you got Joe Biden and you willing to ready to vote for Joe Biden. Give me a break. But anyway, getting back to this, um, when Tando was on air, uh, Tando's on hiatus right now. We played a clip of Bolton bragging about starving the Iranian uh, people. This is an act of war. This is an act of war. And again, I must remind people that as a signatory of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty and as a sovereign nation, um, the Iranians have a right to, to do whatever they want to do. If they feel like they need a nuclear bomb to deter the United States or anybody else from attacking them, well, nuclear having a nuclear bomb has proven to be an effective deterrent from people attacking you. Why you think they ain't attacked um, North Korea? But they entered into agreement, one of the good things that came out of the Obama administration to avert World War III was they signed um, that uh, agreement uh, involving, what, five or six other nations uh, that they would not enrich uranium that could be uh, used to make a nuclear bomb and they, they would dispose of any excess. Uh, Russia would come take control of it. Uh, they, according to the Independent Atomic um, uh, International Atomic Agency that inspects inspected them to make sure they was in compliance with the agreement, said they were in full compliance. And even after the United States pulled out under Donald Trump, um, you know, they continue to abide by the sanctions trying to work with the remaining parties. But um, the, the United States government keeps ramping up sanctions on them. And so the mainstream media is often oh, one of those people or an entity that tries to persuade the U.S. public that it is in our interest as a people to... Uh, interfere and meddle in these other countries' uh, affairs. So, sanctions are an act of warfare. And I'm going to close out the broadcast 
Um, I saw the people. I see the people on the board, but um, there's no questions or comments. So I'm going to close it out by letting you hear Ron Paul's Liberty Report on these new sanctions. Hello, everybody, and thank you for tuning in to the Liberty Report. With me today is Daniel McAdams, our co-host. Daniel, good to see you today. How are you this morning, Dr. Paul? Doing well. We're competing a little bit with the weather. Yes. I hope the weather doesn't <laughs> compete with our program, but <laughs> onward we go. Back to some foreign policy discussion. Back to Iran. It's in the news. Uh, we've uh, uh, saw the backing off of the so-called bombing mm-hmm. raids. They were practically in their airplanes up in the air doing some bombing and kill a few people. And Trump, you know, wisely said, hey, you know, it's not a fair trade. Killing the, the military people estimated 150 people died. He said they didn't kill any of us. Yeah. It's pretty good logic. Good. But yeah. uh, we want him to pursue that same logic and apply it to sanctions. We yes. want to talk about sanctions. Because I've argued for a long time, sanctions are an act of war, and uh, people die from it. So, yes, they die from bombs, but we have to realize that people die from sanctions. All you have to do is go back a short time ago and look at the uh, history of the war in, in Iraq, you know, when it was admitted by our own government that probably 500,000 innocent people died, especially children, from lack of food, starvation, and medications. And uh, now uh, Trump says, well, we're not going to bomb them, but uh, we're going to sanction them. Well, bomb sanctions are bombs, too. Yeah. And uh, let's hope uh, that they come to their senses in the administration and back off and say the sanctions aren't worth much anyway. So let's that's, that's not do it. It causes more trouble. But I don't think neocons care. The neocons want chaos. And uh, they might not even care if if they don't get what they pretend they want. It's just chaos and the people rebel and uh, throw out their leaders. No, I don't, they don't even believe that. But what they want is chaos, whereby uh, in an accident or a false flag, which would justify uh, putting in the troops, which I really believe that Trump is not for. So they're, they're in a mess and they're, uh, they're feeling their way on this. But uh, sanctions can't be a good idea. It's not a good idea. Matter of fact, they're even in a dilemma. Right now, they're probably saying, what can we sanctions? We've done everything in the world to punish these people. And and they have. And uh, what we have to try to get people to understand is that, uh, you know, the original intent of a justified war was to go after military targets and, and military personnel. But the, the, the sanctions go directly at civilians. Yeah. And, you know, they don't deny it. The neocons, uh, you admit that is the case. They want, they want chaos, which makes it very immoral. I mean, uh, I think the whole mess is immoral. But, boy, you could argue the case that you deliberately say, oh, well, we're not going to have a fair fight with the military. Well, we're going to have a, a definite win by bombing civilians and uh, sanctioning civ- civilians, yeah. I mean, which are, in a way, bombed. So that's where the, the dilemma is right now. And as we speak, I imagine they're agitating on exactly what the sanctions uh, should be. <laughs> and uh, maybe later today we will hear. Well, Trump himself seems to understand this, you know, although by what I don't see where his logic is in understanding the problem and and still doing the same thing over and over again. Here's what he said on Sunday. He said Iran right now is in an economic mess. They're going through hell. 
The sanctions have hit him hard. More sanctions are going to be put on, a lot more. It's hard to believe you can even put more sanctions on. You know, so he understands that. He understands that they're hurting the people. They're making them go through hell. But then at the same time, they say, our beef is not with the Iranian people. Yeah, well, who, who's it with? And it is back. It is a bigger picture. And he's very much involved in the bigger picture because this is just a skirmish between an age-old war between Sunni and Shia through between Saudi Arabia and Iran and uh, Israel thrown in there and U.S. thrown in there. And that's been going on for a long, long time. And uh, there's been a lot of determination. Just think that one of the first things that Eisenhower did was get involved in that and, and uh, you, you know, put the Shah in power, mm -hmm. which led to the problems of, of the 70s and uh, the radicalization, uh, which made it worse uh, in Iran for, for everybody. So it, it's, it's a big, big picture that exists, and uh, this is a battle that's going on, but it doesn't seem to have an end because uh, their goals seem to be so weird. It has nothing to do with getting along, and it's, it's a pretense that I Iran is a totally wimp nation that has no alternatives, and they are small and, and not very powerful compared to us. You know, and, and look at the weapon we have here. But they have something on their side, and that's defending their homeland yeah. and a little bit of uh, prestige that they have. So they're not going to give up uh, easily. And uh, there's good reason to believe that this is far from over. You know, it's, uh, it's been going on for a long time, and uh, it's not going to be settled with sanctions. And uh, somebody's going to have to give, and it doesn't look like uh, Pompeo and Bolton is going to give in. And uh, I think it's difficult because even if the president has made a move in a certain direction, sometimes his moves are undermined. You know, like in, in the yeah. early debates with North Korea, all of a sudden things change because Bolton got involved. So there's, uh, there's every reason to believe that this is going to be long term. But I'd like to get the message out to the American people the best I can that sanctions are not a good compromise. They're acts of war. Some people argue they kill more people than bombs, and it could be argued that it's more immoral because it's directed towards civilian rather than military personnel. Yeah, by design. And right, I'm going to leave it there. Um, sanctions are an act of war. Look at Venezuela. You know, um, it's immoral. You're punishing people to force them to rise up and overthrow their own government when they may be perfectly uh, fine with their own government. See, like I said yesterday, let's bring Venezuela. Why did they sanction Venezuela? Why did they sanction Cuba? Cuba been on under uh, sanctions since, what, 1959? When they rose up and overthrew the, um, the American-backed brutal dictator by the name of Batista, who was murdering people and, and what have you, of the mob, a lot of crime down there at the time. So what it is is the United States doesn't want U.S. citizens to see socialism, the government that they the system they call socialism, to succeed. So they sanction them. They cripple their their economy. They attack them, and then they want to then turn around and tell you, see, socialism fails. Well, wait a minute. Didn't you just slap all these sanctions, cut them off from access to world markets and, and things of that nature? So that's really what was what's going on. Now, in terms of Iran, um, 
the U.S. government takes the position that it does on behalf of Israel and Saudi Arabia. So don't let anybody tell you anything different. It ain't about them acquiring a nuclear bomb. It is about uh, supporting Saudi Arabia and Israel against Iran. And like Mr. Paul has said for many, many, many years, it ain't none of our business. If them t- countries want to go to war with each other, let them. Let them. So anyway, that's my broadcast for um, today. Uh, I'll be back on air tomorrow at 11 a.m. Eastern Time to do the show, that the program that I put off for a very long time. Um, and I'll be addressing Afro Christophobia, which I think is a, a, a huge problem in the black community. Even though 80% of African Americans identify as Christians, uh, they are frequently the targets of mocking, uh, belittling them, um, and a lot of disinformation is, is put out there um, to back that. And like I said at the beginning of yesterday's program, I, I follow the lead of Malcolm X. We going to solve the problems of racism, slavery, and, you know, we always going to have racism as long as we have racist people. But how do we minimize their impact on us? Um, we need to unify. And we can't unify with each other if we're going to be insulting each other over what religion we practice or what religion we don't practice, like atheism. You know, I I will work with atheists. I have interviewed atheists about some of the projects they were working on to address racism and what have you. So I don't like talking about religious beliefs because there's beliefs and ain't no point in debating beliefs. But my point is, is to foster dialogue and healing in our community. And for whatever reason, I don't know, uh, I was listening um, I was on. I went on Facebook today to see what articles people were sharing that I might want to include. And the first thing I see when I log, log on is Afro Christophobia, and you know I, I'm just just sick of it, man. And I, I, I and I will follow Mr. Fuller's advice. No contact, no contact, no conflict. You can't expect me to work with you if you're going to be disrespectful to me and my ancestors' beliefs. We can't work together. Why do we need to even discuss my belief? We're supposed to be focusing on slavery and white supremacy. So I didn't want to do the show, even though I had said I would um, months ago. I'm going to do that program tomorrow, addressing Afro-Christophobia and some of the myths associated with why black Americans practice Christianity to whatever degree that they practice it. All right. Thank you for tuning in. If you found the information to be constructive, please share the podcast with others. It'll be up in a couple of hours. Please continue to support the uh, new media efforts and projects of the black talk media project. Make a donation today. You can go to blacktalkradionetwork.com via our PayPal buttons. You don't have to have a PayPal account to make a contribution and join btrcommunity.com for just $24 a year. With that said, we live in a nation, a racist nation, that's still practicing slavery via the 13th Amendment. 
lots of slave catchers out there in our communities um, want to make slaves of us through their criminal codes by criminalizing behavior that has no victim and what have you. And so we have to move um, with purpose behind these enemy lines. And we don't want to do things that's going to unnecessarily put us into prison. Just for example, before I close out, for example, I was on Twitter yesterday and I'm seeing this beef between uh, black people one, both of them supporting reparations for black people, but one going under the label ADOS, the other one not really using a label at all. But the ADOS person threatened this person, talking about smoking that person. I'm like, man, has it gotten that deep? Has the beef between ADOS and other members of the black community gotten that deep? Deep that y'all on Facebook talking about rolling up on somebody's house? Because they talking uh, smack to you behind a computer and you're going to roll up on their house and smoke them. I'm like, man, has it gotten that deep? What is this, boys in the hood? You know, what? I mean, none of this is necessary in advocating for reparations. So what's really going on? And, you know, um, then the person tried to tell me, oh, I didn't mean it that way. Well, you meant it that way, but okay, we'll we'll move on. But then others want to come at me, well, you know he didn't mean it that way. No, I did not. I'm not a mind reader, and I know what smoke means, okay? I may not live in the hood, but I grew up in the hood, and when you're talking about smoking somebody, you're talking about shooting them because smoke will come off that barrel of that gun after you shoot them. This kind of stuff is why one of the reasons, not the sole reason, the sole reason is racist, is why we can't get ahead. But all this infighting over nonsense. And, you know, uh, the Afro-Christophobia also plays into that. All right, with that said, make sure y'all check us out tomorrow, and I'll be back. Peace and blessings to all. Y'all be safe out there.